Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We are now in our God is Able Sermon Series. In this life, it is so easy for us to settle for the ordinary. We wake up and typically have the same routine every single day. Yet our God created us to live an extraordinary life. There is no one in the world exactly like you, and God wants you to reach your full potential. This involves us growing deeper and deeper into Christ while following Him every day. His plans for us are immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's trust Jesus and live out our extraordinary lives. Let's listen in. All right. Well, you guys sounded great this morning, and thank you for joining in and worshiping. Thank you uh, to the band. You guys, we should definitely let those guys know what a great job they do on a week-to-week basis. That was, yeah, there we go. That's what I mean. Uh, and leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 20. Or no, no, that's wrong. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 uh, is where we're going to start. And then we're going to uh, jump over to John chapter 2 here in just a second. So if you want to put your finger in one spot. And, uh, but we're starting in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. A couple weeks ago, we started a new series called God is Able, where we're working through these two verses, 20 and 21, that are really these foundations foundational passages for rolling hills. As we started 20 years ago uh, and, and are kind of reflecting on what has happened over the past 20 years as the first part of the year, now looking forward to what the next 20 years and, and beyond God holds for us, uh, we're kind of going back to these foundational, these foundational verses. In week one, uh, Pastor Jeff encouraged us and, and kind of challenged us to memorize uh, these two verses. And so every week what we're going to do uh, is we're going to pause and we're just going to read these verses together. So you have a chance, at least you have a chance to be able to to hear these verses and say them out loud. And maybe over the next several weeks, you'll remember um, what God's word says and we'll we'll memorize these passages together. So uh, I think it's going to come on the screen and you guys can follow along. Is it going to come on the screen? Yeah, there we go. So let's read it together. So now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You guys, man, y'all, again, crushing it. Uh, I think you've got it memorized, so that's awesome. Um, So we're going to keep, again, we're going to keep working through this, uh, these passages, and and, and hopefully not just today, but you're memorizing this because I believe uh, God's word has something special for us. Week one, when we started, we kind of, we're taking this bite-sized pieces, right? Week one, we talked about to him who, to him, it says now to him, and just kind of that reminder that it all starts with God. That all of this starts with him. It's, it's all, it was his idea from the very beginning. Our lives, everything about it, this church, all of those things, his idea. Last week we talked about him who is able. And we meditated on this truth, this rich truth that he is able. And we can pray specific, bold, faith-filled prayers and trust that he hears us and responds. Maybe even as, as Ms. Kendall says, maybe he doesn't always respond the way that we think that he will. But he'll change the, our hearts to fit what he desires to do. And he is able to do that when we trust it in him and he's willing to do those things. And I heard lots of you talk this week. I don't get a whole lot of feedback week to week. I sometimes joke about not sending me emails. I don't get a lot of emails. It's a blessing. I'm not asking for them. You can keep them. Um, but I, this week, I, in lots of different conversations that I had with individuals, you just shared about how you're praying these bold, specific, very faith-filled prayers, and you've already seen God begin to move. 
And I'm praying right along with you from, for some very specific things in our home and with my, my kids. And, and so I want to encourage you, keep praying those things. Keep praying bold, specific, faith-filled prayers and, and telling the stories of God's faithfulness. That's how we encourage each other in those things. This week, uh, week three, we're going to chew on the next little bit of that passage where it says, to, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. We just sang those words, didn't we? Remember this, let me read it to you again. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And as Paul kind of wraps up this chapter, and you remember he didn't write it in chapters. It's not the original. It was a letter. As he kind of wraps up this thought, he wraps up with a prayer here in this, in what we're reading as chapter three. And it's really kind of a, a transition point for him. And most of what he does in all of his letters is as he's laid out this doctrine and he's going to move in chapter four to really kind of how that fleshes out in our lives. And he's really kind of laying out for this. And he prays this prayer over the Ephesians and for the Ephesians and by, by proxy because of because of Christ and him making us into his people over us. And really what he focuses on when he's praying this prayer is God's power. What he really kind of seems to be meditating and thinking about is he's overwhelmed and humbled and captured by the reality of God's power that, that there's nothing in all of this vast universe Nothing that we know or that is unknown that can ever, that, that will ever or, or can ever successfully stand against or stand in the way of God and his power. It's what, it's what Paul seems to be fixated on and, and focused on as he's kind of wrapping this up. And, and I think what we need to hear this morning is that God's power immeasurably more, even as we started thinking last night to him who is able, he's able and the power that he has is immeasurable. That nothing can stand against his power as we submit to him and walk in obedience to him. And so what I, what I want to do is kind of over the next little bit kind of meditate on this power of God. And, and every week as we've kind of taken this next little bite-sized piece of the, of, the, of the passage, we look at another passage to kind of help us understand what's going on. And we're going to do that same thing as I mentioned, John chapter 12, John chapter 2 in the first 12. 11 verses of that chapter is what we're going to work through is this miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine in this small town of Cana. And I want us to, to kind of chew on these things and, and what, it, what in your worship guide, if you're filling out, here's the things that kind of what I want us to kind of walk home with. And, and I think in your worship guide, it says a little bit different than what I have on my paper because I changed this last minute. It says seven principles for you. If you want to scratch out principles, that sounds weird. I think it's lessons is the better word for that. Seven lessons for us this morning for experiencing God's power from Jesus turning water into wine, what we can learn from what Jesus does and, and experience God's power in our own lives. Before we jump into that, though, let's pray and just ask God's blessing as we continue to, to open his word together. Lord, we, um, we thank you this morning for the moment that we have to, to sing songs to you, to sing songs about you and your greatness and your glory to be reminded that, God, even, even in those moments when we don't feel like it, that, God, you are who you say you are, that you are enough, that you are provider, that you provide more than we can ask or imagine. You are enough, more than enough. And God, as we come to this passage this morning in Ephesians, and then we turn to the John's gospel in this record of you, him, him telling the story of you turning water into wine, God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to hear from you 
you would challenge us with your word. You would give us courage to follow you no matter what the cost and transform us, God. Restore the joy of our salvation. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. So seven lessons, seven lessons for experiencing God's power from Jesus's, from the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. And we're going to start, we're going to kind of work through all of these. I'm not going to read the whole passage in one, uh, one, it's one section. We're going to kind of work through the whole thing. It starts in John chapter two, verse one. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And so here's, if you want to fill this out, it's number one, it says, experience God's power is not limited to setting or circumstance. Experiencing God's power is not limited to setting or circumstance. For, for Christ's first miracle, the first miracle that he performs in his public ministry, right? He's been baptized by John, Holy Spirit descends. The first miracle that he's going to perform in public ministry is going to happen in this little town, this modest little scene in this tiny little village of, of Cana in the city of Galilee or in the town of Galilee. And, and before, a couple years ago, before my, my wife, Rebecca, before her father passed away, he lived in this little small town called Coldwater, Mississippi. It's just south of Memphis. If you know Memphis, there's lots happening in Memphis, lots happening in Memphis. We visited there a couple years ago. I hope that was the last time uh, that I visit there. But there's lots going on in Memphis, right? There's blues and barbecue and basketball. I think those are the three Bs that you're supposed to remember. Right south of that, about 35, 40 minutes outside of that, is this town of Coldwater, Mississippi. And all of those things that are happening in Memphis are not happening in Coldwater, Mississippi. There's a Fred's drugstore in Coldwater, Mississippi. It's actually the place where Fred's drugstore started, and that's it. That's all that's there. It's a, it's a, a small town. It's a pretty inconsequential town. Like, you, you pass through it, and, and, and you are glad that you passed through it. And the village of Cana is a lot like that. It's a lot like that kind of a poor, inconsequential town where there's seemingly nothing happening. There's these people that are having this wedding are more than likely a poor family. They're hosting this wedding, and it's, it's likely the biggest event in their whole lives will be this wedding that they're hosting. And they can't even get the catering order right, as we'll see in just a minute. It's a setting that Jesus launches his public ministry. And you would think that the Messiah, the one that's come to rescue and restore all things to himself, would start, would launch his ministry in, in maybe the religious capital of Jerusalem or the, or the intellectual capital of Alexandria in the time or, or maybe the, the political capital of Rome. But no, Jesus, what he does is he launches his, his public ministry with his first miracle in this small, insignificant little town in this humble place and it seems odd, but again, we said this last week, that what God does, what Jesus does, is he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I say all of that even in the beginning of this because I believe just kind of pointing out this lesson for us that a lot of times we think that we don't have the right stuff, that we're, we're, in, the, we're in the wrong spot or, or to experience God's immeasurably more power. We need all of these things. And the reality is that over and over and again in Scripture and in our lives, it's exactly these kind of places when, when things don't seem like they should be the place where God shows up, that God shows up. That the setting and the circumstances in a humble place in an inconsequential town, those kind of those moments are not hindrances for God's power to move. So if you feel like that this morning, you feel like there's, I'm hopeless and I'm far, I don't have the things that God needs. No, listen, that's the kind of place where God shows up. 
is in these humble moments and these, these, these places where it seems like it's far from the center of where all of the things are happening. God shows up in that place. So the first thing I want us to remember is that it's not limited to the setting and the circumstances. The second thing, if you're following along, is that experiencing God's power starts by inviting Jesus into our daily lives. I love this. In, in verse, verse 1, end of verse 1, end of, end of verse 2, it says, Jesus' mother was there. Verse 2, it says, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And I think it's pretty significant for a couple of reasons that Jesus was invited to the wedding and he went. Right? I think this is really important for us to understand. Weddings are a big deal today for all of us. I don't know exactly if you're married, if, you, if you're planning a wedding, those kind of things. You know that they're big deals. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of emotions and energy that goes into all of these things. And, and, and the same thing happens for these, for these weddings that are happening in, in this time. Is, it was Jesus is going to this wedding. Actually, a little bit, even maybe a little bit more, listen to this description of what a Hebrew wedding would have been like. A Hebrew wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late at night, late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom were taken by torchlight to their home in a parade-like fashion. Instead of a honeymoon, this is where it gets really awesome. Instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house for a week. (laughs) Not planning that wedding. They were considered to be kings and queens and actually wore crowns and dressed in in, in bridal robes. And they lived, they often, it it, it was even better uh, in, in in impoverished towns where they would just celebrate these things when life was difficult. It was considered to be a supreme occasion of life. Many would plod through life all the way through the rest of their lives and never experience a celebration like this again. It was a big deal. I mean, if we think weddings are crazy now, they're probably even a bigger deal. It sounds like a party. I mean, like a mini Mardi Gras is what's going on, right? It's a tame, a tame mini Mardi Gras is probably better better put there. And Jesus was there. I think this is significant because, listen, I've, I, have, I have a front row seat to a lot of weddings. I've been to a lot of weddings, and, I've, and, and as a pastor, I get to perform a lot of weddings. And I, I'm telling you, y'all may not know this, but when the pastor walks into the reception after it's over, it's like all the joy is sucked out. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, like, how many people are like dabbing and like say awkward things. They hide their drink behind them. Like, I saw you. I don't know why you're hiding it. But, but Jesus is here at this party, at this full-on mini tame Mardi Gras. Jesus is there. And he was invited. That's not the kind of like, that's not the picture our culture gives of who Jesus is. That, right, that, that they talk about Jesus. Our culture looks at Jesus and thinks Jesus is the one who steals the joy. No, Jesus is in the middle of all of the joy. And what we're going to see in just a second, he's not just in the middle of it. He's going to provide it. He's there. He was invited and they wanted him there and he went to the wedding. The second thing that I think is significant about this, about the fact that he's there, about inviting Jesus to the wedding. Is it, and I think this is a foundational thing that we've got to highlight in this passage, that everything changes when we, when we invite Jesus into these moments in life. 
But before these moments, there's that moment where we foundationally to experience the immeasurably more power of God in our lives. We can't miss it that, that there's a place where we have to tr- put our faith in Jesus to invite him into our lives, into our, into our, into our hearts, and to, to surrender to our lives to him and putting our faith in him. It's foundational for experiencing this immeasurably more power that we're going to talk about. And what Scripture says that when we do that, that there's a moment of salvation when we put our faith in him, that everything changes, that by grace through faith, Christ makes us new. In in Corinthians, it says the old has passed away and we've become new creations. And in John, it says that what Jesus says that we've crossed over from death to life. In Ezekiel, it says that we've been given a heart of flesh and taken out a heart of stone. There's a moment when we put our faith in Jesus that everything changes. When we experience this immeasurably more power as we invite him into our lives. But there's also the idea, the reality that we continue to invite him into our lives on a day-to-day basis. In Scripture, this is the the difference of justification, that moment where we trust Christ. In sanctification, this ongoing movement, this ongoing him making us look more more like him as we invite him into these moments. If you're following along in daily steps... Proverbs chapter 3, we read it this week as we're reading through the Proverbs. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own, in your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your, stra- your path straight. Literally, what this passage says is saying, invite Jesus, invite the Lord into every aspect, every moment inviting God into all of those things. There's nothing too big or too small. We have to invite him into these things. We've got to stop thinking that we've got it figured out. And and in, in every moment of life, invite him into those places. Every aspect, every moment, we invite him into those places to experience that immeasurably more power that he's promised for us. So the first two, right, we're experiencing God's power is not limited to the setting of the circumstance. It's, it's not, it starts by inviting Jesus into our lives and into our daily lives. And the third thing is that we experience God's power. Experiencing God's power requires that we recognize we have a need. It requires that we recognize that we have a need. If you, if you look at the passage, it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. So, again, it requires this moment where we recognize that there's a need. This is not a small problem. If you think about this, you know, like, okay, they ran out. It's time for everybody to go home. That's not how this works in a small, in in Hebrew weddings specifically. But in a small town, this moment follows you for the rest of your life. This is not a small thing. Right, this small town of Cana, everybody in town is there. They don't need social media for you to be able to see what they're doing. They're all there too. Everybody's there. It's hard to clearly describe just how big of a deal this would have been for the wine to run out of, at the Jewish wedding. It was essential to have enough wine. It, it's, it's, it's social embarrassment. That would have been huge. But truly, there could have been lawsuits brought against the couple. Some commentators would even suggest that this would be grounds for divorce of the couple. It's crazy. But this is a moment for, for, and I don't think it's good grounds for divorce. Hear, Hear me say that. It's just that they suggest that it would be. 
It's a huge social embarrassment. And, 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 and so there's a problem. And, and I kind of want to make this quick aside, just real quick, that there, there's a lot going on here. And, and we're going to cover as much of it as possible in just a minute. But just for the moment, I, I, I think we need to be straightforward about what we mean about this problem. Because it's bigger than just recognizing that there's no wine. That's a part of it, right? But to experience God's power in our lives, you and I, we've got to be willing to admit that we have a need. And that's in, in, in varying ways. One, as we talked about just a second ago, there's the moment where we invite Christ. We've got to recognize that we are desperate and in need without Jesus. That we have no hope of life without Christ. So there's that, but there's also just the moments in life where we have to recognize that we need him, that we don't have what it takes to figure it out. We don't have what it takes to meet the needs that are in front of us, and we've got to bring those things to him. We've, we've got to understand and be ready, be ready to re- admit and recognize that we have a need, and that we, our source of power comes from something else, that it's not us that can satisfy the needs that we have. There's a, there, there, for all of us, this is a monumental moment. The one moment where we recognize that we need Christ, but all those little moments where we, where we come to that place, where the end of ourselves and say, God, I need you because there's no more wine. There's, I don't have any more ability to accomplish what you've called me to accomplish. To say, God, I need you to recognize that need and continue Keep moving, look at verse three again. It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother went to him and said, there's no more wine. Verse four, he says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So number four is this, that the power of God, experiencing the power of God means that we go to him and trust him to do what is right. Experiencing the power of God means that we go to him and trust him to do what is right. And before we jump into all this, I feel like I need to make something really clear because there may be a little tension in the room with the moms, right? I feel like some moms might maybe want to backhand Jesus right now for the way that he spoke to his mother. But let me assure you that Jesus was not disrespectful to his mother, right? The way this reads, right, in our, as we read it, it maybe sounds that way, but I, I, I believe for two reasons that Jesus was not disrespectful to his mother. Number one is because Mary did not respond as if she had just been disrespected, because I believe, I don't care who it is, if you talk to your mom like that, and it's disrespectful, your mom is going to let you know that it was disrespectful, and she does it. What she says is, do whatever he says, right? So we see just in her response. It's one. Secondly is Jesus is sinless. Brass tacks. If he would have dishonored his mom, it would have been a sin. Jesus dishonors his mom in this moment. His sacrifice on the cross was insufficient. And since it was, it was sufficient, we know that he didn't dishonor his mom right here. So we don't understand necessarily the reason why the same language he uses on the cross when he says woman to to Mary, he says the same thing to her. So it's got to be something that's a little more tender than the way it kind of comes across here. So, but he's talking to her and basically the best way that I can, that I could find to put it is that he's basically saying, listen, I'm not on your clock. I'm on the father's clock. And when he's talking about my time has not yet come, it's it's not yet time for me to be sacrificed on the cross. It's not yet time for this, the fullness of what I came for to be fulfilled. But he does what she says to do. He responds to her request. But he's just letting us know that this is only going to be the beginning of what is going to happen 
as he begins to show us who he is. So we move on. There's a problem. There's no wine, right? And he says that that she goes to him and she trusts him to do what is right. right. The problem is that there's no wine. She goes to him. Why does she go to Jesus? Because he's Jesus. I mean, that makes sense for us, but you've got to remember that, that Jesus has not performed a miracle at this point. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. Now, she knows that there's something special about it. She was there. She knows that this is, this is God's child. She was there when the angel said, I'm going to put this child. So she knows th- something special, and maybe she thinks today's the day that he's going to show up and do something special. I don't know exactly why, but she goes to Jesus because she knows that that's where she needs to go. She doesn't understand fully what he's going to do. She doesn't know why necessarily she's going to Jesus. But she goes to Jesus because that's the only place she knows to go. And in this moment, she displays, whether she knows it or not, she displays this great dependence and faith that we need to learn from, that when we have a problem, even though we don't know what he's going to do, even though it may be a small problem or a big problem, even though we don't understand all of what, how he may respond to it, we've got to stop trying to figure it out on our own and go to him. And take it a step further, not only does she go to him, when she lays out this, lays out this need, she lays a pattern for us that we need to live by, that she goes to Jesus with the problem and she trusts him to do what is right. And we have got to trust him to do what is right when we go to him with the problem. She only says, do whatever he says do. She doesn't know what he's going to do. She just knows that whatever he does is going to be the right thing. And we've got to understand that we don't know necessarily what he's going to do, but we've got to trust that what he's going to do is going to be the right thing. And he can do the right thing because he is Jesus. David and Peter says that we cast our cares on him because he cares for us and he sustains us, right? So he can do it. We can trust him. If Paul's words are true, then we can trust him. He says that Christ was before all things and in all things and through all things. He receives glory so we can trust him. We can trust what he does and what he says. We can bring our needs to him. So when we have a problem, we we go to him and we trust him to do what is right. It's a pattern that, I see that, that Mary lays out for us that I think is a part of the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. So we continue, go back to verse 6. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for, the Jewish, for Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holds from 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master master of the banquet. And so they did. The fifth thing that I think we need to learn or the lesson for us is that experiencing God's power happens when we're obedient and get involved in what God's doing. Experiencing God's power happens when we're obedient and get involved in what God's doing. Again, remember, Mary says she goes to Jesus with the problem. She presents the problem. She trusts him to do what is right. Jesus tells these guys that are there to fill the jars, and they get to work. I think it's interesting. Friday night, we had a football game uh, for, for my middle son, and he plays for a small school. And so uh, there's lots of things that parents have to do a part of this. And we were playing south, uh, south of here in, in uh, a place that I don't like to go, called Alabama. And the, um, 
and the field that we were playing at, there wasn't out of school, so they didn't have a lot of the resources. So the coaches there said, hey, there's not, you can fill up your water things with this hose. And like, I know that I used to do that, but something about me is like, I love hose, whatever. So I went and bought a bunch of water for the boys. And I got these one gallon jugs of water and I had to put them in my truck. And then I had to I had to take them from my truck and put them in my wife's car. And it was like 16, 17 gallons of water. And at like two per or four per trip, I had to take four trips. And there was a point when I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to call somebody else to come and do this. It was just four trips with gallons of water. It's not a lot. I know y'all can judge me, whatever. But I was like, I don't want to do this. And then I thought about this moment. When at best, these guys had to take maybe five gallon jugs. Let's say they had five gallon jugs of water. Maybe they had two. And so they had to go and they filled up these five. I don't know how far away it was that they had to go fill out these gut jugs of water, but they filled up jugs of water and they brought it back because they didn't bring the 30 gallon jugs to, to do, fill this up. So they had to bring something else. They brought that back and they filled it up. And I don't know how many trips they had to make, but it was more than four to fill up six, 30. There's 180 gallons of water that they had to fill up. One at a time. That seems ridiculous, right? They asked for wine. Jesus is saying, go fill up these ceremonial water jugs with water. God, what are you doing? It's almost like you, you don't even understand. what Jesus, No, she said wine. We're going to have to go do something. But Jesus had a plan, and, he's, and, he, and they don't argue. They just get to work. And they're obedient to what Jesus says to do, obedient to their words. And, and right here in the middle of what Jesus is doing, right here in this moment, they're obedient to what he, what he says to do. And those guys, those individuals, I don't know who exactly it was, these servants that he says something to, they go and do this. Maybe it was even the disciples. They go and do it. And in the middle of doing what Jesus says to, to do, they get to experience God's power. And here's the principle. The people who want to experience God's power at work in them and through them are the people who are obedient and taking action, doing what God tells them to do. I talk to people all the time that want to say, they want to, I just want to experience God's power at work in my life, but they're sitting on the sidelines and they're not actively following him or being obedient. And, and, and I, I, I just want to say, listen, you don't really want to experience God's power. Because experiencing God's power, what, what, we, what it means to experience God's power is getting involved in what God's doing. Being obedient to what God has called you to. And there's so many places in that, so many parts of our lives that that's, that's true. If we want to experience God's power, it takes the step of being obedient to what God has called us to, no matter what the cost. For some of us, that means stepping out, taking that next step and having a conversation with somebody about the gospel. It means maybe moving on from one job to the next because you know that God's called you to do something else. Maybe it's just that you step into a serving role here on Sunday mornings. I don't know what it is, but if you want to experience God's power, it's never going to happen as you're sitting on the sidelines not being obedient to what God's called you to. We're never going to experience that power. We join him, and that's where we experience that power. And these guys or these individuals who picked up those jugs got to experience God's power. Even though it seemed at the moment maybe a little bit foolish. And we move on, verse, or the sixth thing that I think is important. Look at verse 9. It says, to the ma they bring it to the master of the banquet, and he tastes he, he taste the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from. And though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called to the bridegroom, he called the bridegroom aside. 
Instead, everyone brings out the choice wine at first and then the cheaper wine when the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Here's the, the, the sixth lesson, that, that experiencing God's power changes lives. Experiencing God's power changes lives. We mentioned a second ago, but this, it's a huge social embarrassment that happened for, for them to run out of, of water and one that the couple would deal with for a long time, if not for the rest of their lives. But when Jesus shows up and displays his power, it changes the lives of this couple. Because what Jesus does is he restores the joy that had been drained out when the wine, when the wine ran out. He restores the joy back into this moment that, that had been drained out when the wine ran out. And we know what it means, what it looks like for the joy to run out. All of us have had this moment where the joy has run out. Personally, if we slow down long enough, we'll, we'll recognize that if we take the time to understand that these moments where joy runs out in life, right? When the joy runs out in our career, maybe the joy has run out in your, in your marriage or in parenting, or maybe the joy has run out because of health problems. Maybe the joy has run out because of finances. There's, and, and, but the, we know what it means for the joy in life to run out. There's nothing wrong with these natural joys in life and all these things, the hobbies that God's given these things to us, marriage and family and relationships and, and health and finances and food and all those things are given to us by gifts, by this a gift from our, our glorious provider as, as, as something to enjoy, but it happens to all of us when the joy runs out. And what do we do? We do what it says here, that we go to Jesus because he's come to us. He's come to bring to us the joy that, that has been broken by sin and bring that joy abundantly. Here's something that we remember as we look through these passages is that the signs, these miracles that Jesus performs are never just about the miracle. They're never just about this moment where he does something pretty, pretty astounding, right? It's never just about him having, uh, having this power over the elements. There's something bigger at play here. And this, it's true in this story that what Christ is showing us in his glory and his power to change the physical elements of the water into wine, but even more is the power that he's, what he's showing us is the power that he has to change lives, and that's the power of the gospel. They had no wine, and that's a succinct statement. Like, it's a very clear statement, and, and it's about what the young couple's problem was. But John, what John saw and what we need to see is that this is a description of something spiritual. You see, in the Jewish mindset, what, the wine running out was, was a wine, wine was a symbol of joy. And so this symbol, this, this joy, the wine running out was, this, was a picture of the joy running out. And so we know, again, what we said just a second ago, that, that it, this moment where, where the wine runs out is this picture of the joy running out of life, the joy running out in this moment. And, and so what John is telling us as he's writing and what Jesus is showing us in this life is that without Christ, there is no wine, or without Christ, there is no joy. And even more specific or more significant, as we read a little bit closer, what he's saying is that Christ is not just bringing joy, he's bringing a new kind of joy where he's the source of that joy. The passage tells us that these water, these water jars were for ritual purification. They were a part of this religious ceremony. And by performing this miracle, what Jesus says is that those water jars, 
He says the old religion, the old way, the, the rituals that, that were meant to bring life, they're, they're dead and gone and they're joyless, but I'm going to bring life in a way that is new and right and whole and abundant. These joyless rituals that don't bring life, Christ came to transform the water into wine. And he's saying, I'm going to bring life to what is lifeless and abundant joy to what was joyless. Christ is saying that I'm the new source of joy. I'm transforming the old and stale water of religion into the new life-giving water of relationship, a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, where Christ is our joy. And it's not based on what we have done or what we can do, but rather on what he has done for us. I love the way that one, one author puts this. He says, he says, the party seemed to be over, but the Redeemer turned everything around and provides everyone with fuller provisions than they had before the wine ran out. And he still does. He can turn nights of weeping into the morning of joy. And when the earth's pleasures depart, when his people are reduced to the simplest and the humblest conditions, he can transform it by his presence and through his power and turn the water of life into wine. Christ restores our joy. He changes our lives. And the last thing, the last one here, verse 11, it says, And Jesus did here in Cana, and what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Number seven is if we experience God's power, it deepens our faith in Jesus. I want to invite the band to come back up. I, what I love about what happens in this story is that best we can tell, there's maybe a handful of people that recognize what happens, that, that something significant has happened, right? At this point, he has maybe four or five disciples, so we've got a handful there. We've got Mary, who knows, and maybe a couple of other people that, that knew about it, and we've got the, the, the master of the banquet and then also the, the bridegroom. There's a small number of people who know what happened, and, and maybe some of them don't even really fully understand that there was no wine and now there is, and God transformed the whole thing. Lots of Jesus' miracles are seen by lots of different people, but in this one, it's really seen by just a handful of people. And, and, and what I think we've got to remember is, is that, that, there's, that Jesus wants to do, that he sees where you are right now. And some of the miracles that he performs around us are just so big and they're so awesome. But really, right now, I want you to know that he sees where you are right now. He knows what you're going through. And he wants to do something to restore that joy back into your life. And it may just be something between you and him. It may not be some extravagant moment where everybody gets to see it. It may just be that he shows up and he restores that joy. Where the wine has run out, he restores that wine. Where the joy has run out, he restores that joy in your heart. And it's just between you and him. And so this morning, for just a second, as we sing this song, this is really just for a moment for us, a moment of response for us. You get to respond the way that you want to respond. 
And we don't do this very often, but in, in a cafeteria or a cafetorium, I don't know what you call it, but, but the reality is that we want to say that this area in the front, I mean, we want this to be a place where you can come and say, God, I, I, I need to come before you. Maybe this is, can transform this cafeteria stage into an altar where you can come and say, God, I need you to show up. You don't have to come up here. There's nothing special about coming up here. I just, I want to have us a time to say, hey, maybe that step of obedience is that step where you get to see him move in your heart. Maybe it's that you need to sit where you are and turn around, stay in your your area, but turn around and kneel at your seat. Maybe you need to sing this song loud. I don't, whatever your moment is, God wants to meet you right now. And what I want you to do is be obedient because in obedience, we get to experience the power of God. And so as we sing this song, you respond in obedience. And as the song ends, I'll pray over us and kind of move us to the next thing. But this is going to be a time of response for us, a time of saying, God, I want to experience your power, the immeasurably more power that you promised for us. So let's stand and you respond as we sing, however you feel like you need to respond, whatever's appropriate for you in obedience to him. Lord, we pray for this moment that you would move in a mighty way. We know, God, by, the, by what your word tells us, that your spirit is in all places at all times, that you are present in all places at all times, but we pray that you would make your spirit known to us this morning, that we would feel that closeness, that, God, we would respond in, in moments. Maybe I know, God, this morning that there are hearts here that, are, that the, the wine has run out, the joy has run out, and you desire to do something in their hearts to restore that joy. And it may just be an intimate moment with them. I pray that you would move, that you would meet us, show off this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.